Episode 16 of War in the Book of Mormon, Part 4.1, Alma to Nephiha, The Evolution of Military Leadership. Welcome to War in the Book of Mormon. I am Brian Steed, and in this episode, we will discuss the significant evolution in leadership that occurred as the Nephites changed from king to chief judge and then changed chief judges from Alma II to Nephiha. This wasn't about an electoral shift. It marked the true change of rule by sovereign to the sovereignty of law at the highest level, and it was accompanied by a change in military leadership as well. The leader of the government was no longer, and would no longer be, at least not for generations, the leader of war fighting. I want to inform you that all opinions and suppositions expressed in what follows are entirely mine and in no way reflect the positions, opinions, or policies of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I quote from Alma chapter 1, verse 1. Now it came to pass, in the first year of the reign of the judges over the people of Nephi, from this time forward King Mosiah, having gone the way of all the earth, having warred a good warfare, walking uprightly before God, leaving none to reign in his stead, nevertheless he had established laws, and they were acknowledged by the people, therefore they were obliged to abide by the laws which he had made. I want to define this period of Book of Mormon history. Why, in the previous quote, did Mosiah II leave none to reign in his stead? It was because all four of his sons were no longer in the kingdom. They had gone to the Lamanites to serve as missionaries of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This period of political change began with the departure of the royal line, insofar as there was such a thing, and the ending of that line. As a result, there needed to be a change. The questions were whether or not there should be a new line started or there should be a new government system. Mosiah II recommended the latter, and so the Nephites embarked on a government system with a chief judge that was selected by the voice of the people. We will discuss this tidbit in a moment. From a literary sense, this is the second of four time discontinuities in the Book of Mormon. The first was with the Zenophites. The second was with the sons of Mosiah II. And the third was with Helaman II during the Amalekiahite War. And the fourth was with the Jaredites. I give them in that order as that is how they appear in the Book of Mormon. However, as consistent listeners know... This is the third discontinuity that we are dealing with in this podcast, as we have already discussed both the Xenophytes and Jaredites. By time discontinuity, I mean that the record provides details out of chronological sequence. In this case, we learn about Alma II's actions, and then later learn about the actions of the sons of Mosiah II that were happening with near simultaneity. Part 4 of the podcast series deals with this entire time discontinuity. It begins with the departure of the sons of Mosiah II and will end with the movement of the anti-Nephi-Lehi's, or people of Ammon, from the land of Jershon to the land of Melech. Some of you might be saying, Whoa! Who are these anti-Nephi-Lehi's and what are you talking about? 
I will give a brief summary of events in a somewhat chronological format to cover this part. I will then dive into a couple of details in this period. I will conclude with a couple of points of application about this period and what Mormon might be telling us, or actually showing us in his presentation of these stories. The sons of Mosiah too were converted to the gospel of Jesus Christ as completely as any people in Scripture. Their conversion serves as the exemplar of conversion as we learn through their story that once we are fully converted, we cannot bear the idea that others are without the powerful, life-changing truths that we know, and therefore we want to share those truths as widely as possible. This included, for the sons of Mosiah too, sharing the gospel with the Lamanites, the expressed enemies of their people, and a people from whom the Xenophites escaped only about 28 years earlier. The sons of Mosiah too left the land of Zarahemla and went south to the land of Nephi, or Lehi-Nephi. I will try to consistently call it the land of Nephi throughout, and by this I mean the general land where the Lamanites lived, with lots of subdivisions. The sons of Mosiah too divided into at least three groups, and probably more, as they seemed to have multiple companions. It wasn't simply the four sons of Mosiah too, as we learned the names of some of the other companions along the way, as in Alma chapter 21 verse 11. Ammon went to the land of Ishmael, which was ruled by a son of the king of the Lamanites, who was named Lamoni. Ammon became a servant of the king, demonstrated his loyalty and quality, thereby allowing him to teach the gospel to the king. The king was humbled by Ammon's exploits, and he listened and miraculously received a converting witness of Jesus as the Christ and as his Savior and Redeemer. Many in the land of Ishmael were converted as well. Lamoni and Ammon traveled to help Ammon's brothers, who Ammon had been told about in Revelation. On the way, they met the king of the Lamanites, Lamoni's father, who threatened Lamoni and Ammon. Ammon defeated the king in single combat, and the king granted Lamoni autonomy and allowed Ammon and Lamoni to continue on their mission. Lamoni was instrumental in securing the freedom of Ammon's brother, Aaron, and his companions from a Lamanite prison. All of the Nephite missionaries continued their service. Meanwhile, back in Zarahemla, the chief judge was Alma too. He was faced by a dissenter named Amlasai, who wanted to be a king. Alma led an army against those who followed Amlasai, won the battle, and pursued Amlasai and his army for the rest of the day, as they fled into the wilderness, heading south. Alma found out the following morning that Amlesi had linked up with the Lamanite army, led by the king of the Lamanites. I assert that this was the same king previously defeated by Ammon. Alma defeated the king of the Lamanites and Amlesi close to the city of Zarahemla. The king of the Lamanites either led or sent another attacking army toward Zarahemla that same year that was also defeated. Aaron subsequent to his release from prison and the defeats of the Lamanite armies, came to the land of Nephi to teach the king of the Lamanites, and he found that king, who I submit had been individually defeated by Ammon and collectively defeated by Alma too 
and the Nephite army outside Zarahemla, and again defeated later in the same year, I believe that these defeats were why the king of the Lamanites was humbled and willing to listen to the Nephite missionary. Regardless of the reasons for his humility, he was converted, as were many others. The king of the Lamanites, whose name we do not know, died. The converted Lamanites took on a new collective name as the Anti-Nephi-Lehi's. The meaning of this name is not clear. One way to look at it is that they were expressing that they were different, almost the exact opposite at the time of their new collective name than they were prior, and thus they chose a name that expressed this transformation. These people were hated by the Nephite dissenters living among the Lamanites and by the Lamanites who didn't convert to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Those who hated the anti-Nephi-Lehi's, I will call Lamanites, for simplicity's sake. In the land of Zarahemla, Alma II gave up the judgment seat to preach the gospel and strengthen the members of the Church of Jesus Christ. He traveled from city to city seeking to do just that. He was replaced on the judgment seat by Nephiha, who was selected by the voice of the people. The anti-Nephi-Lehi's entered into a covenant to never again take human life. The Lamanites, in their anger against the change of their brethren, attacked the anti-Nephi-Lehi's, killing many, which caused many of the attackers to repent and become converted. Those who didn't repent were angry at the unsatiated bloodlust from killing those who wouldn't fight back. They marched on the Nephite city of Ammonihah. Alma, too, had been preaching in the city of Ammonihah, where he was eventually arrested and imprisoned. He was able to escape by the miraculous occurrence of an earthquake. Alma, too, and other believers fled or escaped Ammonihah for other Nephite cities. The Lamanites descended on Ammonihah and destroyed the city in a single day and killed everyone. They next attacked the city of Noah and took captives from there to bring back to the land of Nephi. Nephihah appointed a chief captain to raise an army and bring back the captives, which he did. The Lamanites continued to be angry with the anti-Nephi-Lehi's and to attack them repeatedly. Ammon and his brothers argued for the anti-Nephi-Lehi's to come to the land of Zarahemla. After receiving supporting revelation, the community of anti-Nephi-Lehi converts traveled to the wilderness south of Zarahemla and waited there while the sons of Mosiah too traveled into Zarahemla to speak with the chief judge. The anti-Nephi-Lehi's were granted the land of Jershon for their home. The Lamanites continued in their anger and they attacked the Nephites. A tremendous battle was fought in the wilderness between the collective lands of Zarahemla and Nephi, in which the Nephites won. Alma too recognized a problem with a people called the Zoramites, who lived in the land of Antionum, which seemed to have been between Jershon and the Lamanites. The Zoramites had opened a correspondence with the Lamanites and looked to be on the edge of dissenting to become Lamanites. Alma too led a massive missionary effort to prevent this loss of the land of Antionum. Though we have great scripture from the teachings associated with this missionary effort, from a political and military perspective, it failed. The Zoramites dissented to the Lamanites. The Nephites feared the land of Jershon was too exposed for the anti-Nephi-Lehi's, and they moved the community to the land of Melech, 
which was better protected from possible Lamanite attack. Whew! Those are the main events of the period we will discuss in Part 4 in greater detail. The whole period goes from about 92 B.C. to about 74 B.C. This period wasn't very long, but these were the opening events of the detailed conflict accounts of the Book of Mormon. We get a lot of important information from them. Now let's talk some of the big changes in this period. We are not yet at the complexity of the Amalekiahite War, but we are pretty close. We see a change from the Homeric type of leadership demonstrated in the Xenophyte battles to more bureaucratic leadership. As Book of Mormon readers know, we still have heroic leadership later on, but we also have chief captains directing others to fight more often than they were leading in battle themselves. There was a change in warfare, from the simple style of warfare in terms of a single location at a single time, to a war that included multiple campaigns across several theaters of war that were nearly, or actually, simultaneous. The command and control of this dispersed and demanding style of warfare also changed in this intervening period. It began with the new chief judge, Alma II, leading armies himself. This was similar to the actions of Zenith and Limhi. By the end of this period, there was a separation of political leadership from military leadership. This was similar to the embryonic form seen with Limhi and Gideon at the end of the Zenophyte period, as we discussed in episodes 13 and 14. It is probable that such a transition could not have happened under a tribally-based monarchy, where the monarch was expected to lead through example. Once the system of government changed, it is probable that the expectation of the ruling political figure also changed to where he did not necessarily need to be a battlefield commander. This period also marked a larger transition from a monarch-led tribal grouping to a law-governed state. It is important not to overemphasize this change, because early in the Book of Third Nephi, and as late as the Book of Mormon, we are told of divisions of the people based on family or tribal associations. It also seemed apparent that leadership, both politically and militarily, followed dynastic or tribal patterns. I think it is safe to say that Nephite and Lamanite culture was always some form of tribal culture, and never what we think of as a modern state though I will use that term to separate the period of rule by kings from that of rule by magistrates. As a matter of context, Alma II was chief judge from 91 to 83 BC, or something like eight years. He was followed by Nephiha as the second chief judge who ruled from 83 BC until his death in 68 BC, or something like 15 years. In this section, there was also a critical change in the Nephite-Lamanite relationship. This was when dissensions came to the fore in the narrative. They served as sources of internal Nephite and, in one instance, Lamanite conflict, and then provided the necessary catalysts for interstate conflict. Again, the Xenophytes provide a great window into this larger arena with the role of the priests of Noah in changing the Lamanite strategic and economic outlooks. Alma II dealt with the dissension of Amlici, who joined with an invading Lamanite army to attack toward the city of Zarahemla. Nephiha dealt with three dissensions, but only the first of the three fit in the period currently under discussion in part four of this podcast. 
The second and third will each be in the next two parts. The three dissensions are Zoram III, Amalekiah, and Moriantin. You might notice that I don't include the people of Ammonihah, which was a city that killed Christian believers and imprisoned a former chief judge, Alma II. Though they were of the order of Nehor, and arguably Antichrist, they were not coordinating with, nor intending to join with the Lamanites against the Nephites, and thus not dissenters. Dissenters have been important before, as I outlined in episode 9 of this podcast series. Mormon emphasized them in this period with Nehor and his followers, Amlesi, and ending with Zoram III. Each of these people and their associated groups challenged the new law-based state and provided leadership and emotional energy to the Nephite-Lamanite conflict. This was a period of less than one generation, only 17 or 18 years, but the changes were critical to understanding how Nephite conflict evolved. This was also a great example of needing to read between the lines on Mormon's record to understand changes wrought by conflict. This section ends with a watershed event in Lamanite and Nephite political, social, and military culture that only receives three verses of coverage in Alma chapter 28 verses 1 to 3. The tremendous battle of the wilderness provides great insight into why the period preceding it followed one model and the period subsequent to this battle was significantly different. This part of the podcast includes this episode where I will address a few of the political and organizational changes. The following episode, or 4.2, which explains the missionary and conflict actions of Ammon among the Lamanites. Part 4.3 is a battle analysis on the fighting against the Amlicites led by Alma II. Part 4.4 is an explanation of the conversion, covenants, and conflicts of the anti-Nephi-Lehi's. Part 4.5 is a battle analysis on the tremendous battle of the wilderness. Both parts 4.4 and 4.5 will address the missionary efforts to the Antichrist and dissenters called the Zoramites. Now, on to the big issues. Number 1. Missionaries as a source for political change and security. One of the recurring themes of the Book of Mormon is that the gospel of Jesus Christ is a force for good. Not simply good in a moral sense, though that is obviously true, but good in a real world, temporal and physical sense. When people believe in and live the gospel of Jesus Christ, they are better neighbors, better partners, better allies, and just plain better at everything in life. We will see this several times. I will provide three examples. First is the reasoning for the work of the sons of Mosiah 2, and I quote from Mosiah chapter 28, verse 2, that perhaps they might bring them to the knowledge of the Lord their God and convince them of the iniquity of their fathers, and that perhaps they might cure them of their hatred towards the Nephites, that they might also be brought to rejoice in the Lord their God, that they might become friendly to one another, and that there should be no more contentions in all the land which the Lord their God had given them. Close quote. The sons of Mosiah II wanted to serve for the eternal welfare of the souls of others, which was certainly their primary motivation, but also they wanted to serve because the gospel of Jesus Christ, being generally accepted, 
makes everyone's life better. The second example is the reason why Alma too gave up the judgment seat to preach the gospel to the Nephites. I quote from Alma chapter 4 verse 19, And this he did, that he himself might go forth among his people, or among the people of Nephi, that he might preach the word of God unto them, to stir them up in remembrance of their duty, and that he might pull down by the word of God all the pride and craftiness and all the contentions which were among his people, seeing no way that he might reclaim them, save it were in bearing down in pure testimony against them. Close quote. The point was to reduce contentions, and I would say that by doing so, to reduce dissensions as well. This quote clearly showed Alma II's perception of conflict resolution. The word of God and pure testimony were the surest ways to resolve and end contention. The third example was the justification for the missionary effort to the Zoramites led by Alma II. I quote from Alma chapter 31, verses 4 and 5. Now the Nephites greatly feared that the Zoramites would enter into a correspondence with the Lamanites, and that it would be the means of great loss on the part of the Nephites. And now, as the preaching of the word had a great tendency to lead the people to do that which was just, yea, it had had more powerful effect upon the minds of the people than the sword or anything else which had happened unto them. Therefore Alma thought it was expedient that they should try the virtue of the word of God. Close quote. Once again, Mormon emphasized the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ in resolving conflicts and assisting peoples in living in harmony. Alma, too, was a spiritual man with a testimony of the saving power of Jesus Christ, but he was also a leader who cared for the welfare of his people. He taught the gospel so people could enjoy the personal blessings of salvation, and he taught the gospel so that people would live in peace and harmony. He did not leave the judgment seat to stop leading his people. He left it because he perceived that he could lead his people better teaching the gospel of Jesus Christ full time. Note the effect of the preaching of the word. It led people to be better, and it was a better way to effect actual change than was violent compulsion. Number two, change in political structure. I have already introduced the change of governance from kings to chief judges, but let's address what that meant. As Alma II stepped up to fill the judgment seat, he represented a change in philosophical rule, though not necessarily a radical departure from perceived rule. He was of the tribe of Nephi, as was his predecessor, King Mosiah II. It is certain that to many of the uneducated, to whom the concept of governance is esoteric, and non-essential, they saw another Nephite in the senior position. The successor to Alma II, Nephiha, continued to come from the same tribe, at least I suppose that based on his name, and the dynastic succession of chief judges through all of the Book of Alma and into the Book of Helaman came from one of these two families. We lose the dynastic link in the Book of Helaman, though it is possible that it continued with those who maintained the position after Nephi 4. The role of leader changed in more than simple philosophy, though this took time. In terms of conflict, Alma II led the army of the Nephites just as did Mosiah II, 
because he was the chief magistrate, as we are told in Alma chapter 2, verse 16. In the second external conflict during this period, in the position of chief judge at the Battle of Sidon Crossing, Alma too was injured, and he designated another unnamed person to lead the Nephite army. Alma too ended his military leadership with his first, only, and very successful campaign. This was a campaign that was conducted based on a politically motivated rebellion and then dissension. Rather than government through kings, the government transformed into a magistracy of judges who were to base their judgments on the written law. The program of judges included checks and balances of higher judges and groups of lower judges. The ability to overturn decisions on appeal and to impeach higher judges based on performance was included in this formation. The first chief judge was Alma II, the son of Alma, the leader of the Church of Christ among the Nephites. Alma II served in both roles, succeeding to the position of his father as the chief spiritual leader and the position of chief magistrate. His first significant challenge came in the first year as chief judge when a man named Nehor was charged with murder. This capital offense led to a death sentence carried out by what I suppose to be the man jumping, or being pushed, from a cliff, as inferred from Alma chapter 1 verse 15. Nahor is discussed at some length in episode 9, which is part 2.3 of this podcast series. The following year saw a growing element of persecution within Nephite society as religious persecution and possibly ethnic tribal persecutions increased. This persecution grew to a rebellion among the people of the land of Zarahemla as a man named Amlicite sought to return the government to a monarchy with himself as the monarch. This part of the narrative is discussed in detail in episode 18 or part 4.3. Alma II led the fighting against Amlicite and then against the combined Amlicite-Lamanite armies where he was wounded. Later in that same year, Alma II sent another Nephite army to defeat and drive off a second attacking Lamanite force. After eight years as the chief judge, Alma II voluntarily handed the position over so he could focus entirely on his work as leader of the Christians. He selected his successor, which was confirmed by the voice of the people. His name was Nephiha. Alma too then conducted a missionary journey throughout the land of the Nephites, and this demonstrated some regional divisions among the people. Alma too was a heroic leader along the same lines as Mosiah II or Zenith. He ruled the people. He judged the people. He commanded the people in times of war. He was at the front of battle, as we will see. In so many ways, Alma II wasn't a lot different from a king, except he gave away the judgeship. He was one of only two people to do so. The other was his great-grandson, Nephi IV, who will give up the chief judgeship for much the same reason, to call the people to repentance and put the church in order. We will discuss him in much more detail down the road. Alma II and then Nephi IV, passing the chief judge position to preach, established a legacy among their posterity of the priorities of the family, gospel first, political position second. Every chief judge other than Alma II or Nephi IV either died or was killed in office. 
In this sense, don't think of the voice of the people as a form of election. It was closer to a form of selection. I think of the voice of the people based on my experience with Bedouin tribal politics. The various sheikhs get together after the sheikh of sheikhs dies, and they select a new sheikh of sheikhs. Each family or family group is represented, and they each have something like a vote. It isn't truly democratic or fully representative, as certain families or tribes have a greater voice or they are more respected than others. That said, it is still a form of representative government, as everyone is heard and can be heard in the council, so the voice of the people is listened to, and the majority of influence does win. This is how I imagine it, but that doesn't mean that was how it was done among the Nephites. Other than the period following the appearance and teachings of Jesus Christ, Mormon made it clear that the peoples about which he was writing divided themselves and perceived themselves as familial and tribal groups rather than in some modern definition of a state. State is used in this podcast as a way of differentiating between the tribal monarchy and the tribal magistracy, but the people seemed to remain a tribal culture throughout the record. The dynastic succession of the magistracy was indicated earlier. The military command seemed to follow similar lines, as sons and fathers have command relationships as well as family ones. Lehi too served his father. Moronaiha succeeded his father. There is insufficient information to determine how long this tradition was followed, or if the change in the nature of the opponent from a pure tribal state to a robber-insurgent band removed the need for the position of chief captain in the later stages of the pre-Christ period of the Book of Mormon. I earlier expressed that Alma II was an exemplar character. If you are familiar with the Swiss psychiatrist Carl Jung, then you are also aware of his emphasis on archetypes. Alma II was and is an archetype. I suggest that he is the archetype of the righteous warrior leader. He led in all fields of endeavor. He led against sin. He led his people materially and politically. He led his people in conflict, both temporally and spiritually. When we discuss the battle analysis in episode 18, or part 4.3, we will see how he led. He took charge both in terms of directing others and then in wading in literally, as we will see, and figuratively, to get the job done as needed. It is powerful stuff. Alma II is also one of only three pre-Mormon people in the large plates of Nephi who are quoted in the first person at length. By that, I mean a chapter or more. Zenith was the first person, Alma II was second, and we have chapters of his first person counsel and teachings. Amulek, Alma II's missionary companion, is the third, as I said about Zenith, being quoted in the first person by Mormon means something powerful. Alma II was followed by Nephiha. Nephiha was not a wicked man by any stretch. In fact, we are told in Alma chapter 4 verse 16 that he was chosen by Alma II from among the elders of the church. Even though we can assume him to be a righteous man, Nephiha was not like Alma II in many ways. 
Obviously, he wasn't the head of the church. Alma too was. He never commanded in a battle, even though there were several battles fought during his 15 years as chief judge. He did make judgments, but he didn't seem to have any significant control of the entirety of the Nephite lands. The events at Ammonihah are important in understanding this. We are told about these in Alma chapters 8 through 14. The judges in that city executed people for what could be considered trumped-up charges. They persecuted and then imprisoned the former chief magistrate. They drove people out of their city for their beliefs, which seemed to be generally accepted as the dominant, if not always accepted or supported, beliefs of the Nephite state. If Nephiha were aware of these events, as I assume that he must have been, why was that so? You would think that he would know what was going on in the state. Nephiha passed the chief judgeship to his son and then his grandsons, almost like a dynastic succession. Others held the chief judgeship later, whose lineage was not stated. They may have been connected to Nephiha's family, but that is not clear. Unlike Alma II, Nephiha was a bureaucratic leader rather than a heroic leader, a manager of the laws and judges. Most of the chief judges who followed Nephiha adhered to his leadership style. Number 3. Chief Captain The Nephite army in the days of Alma II and through the first eleven years of Nephiha's occupation of the position of chief judge seemed to serve a role of emergency response. A militia called to serve in times of crisis. An exception was the permanent placement of Nephites to guard the people of Ammon in the land of Jershon. This will be discussed more in episode 19 or part 4.4, but in dealing with this issue, they were probably locally levied militia serving short periods of time rather than a permanent garrison of regular soldiers. In the battles under Zenith, there was a single leader or captain. Limhi seemed to divide command with a military captain, probably Gideon. Benjamin and Mosiah too were both described as being solitary warrior kings leading their people in battle. Almatu led an army against the Amlicites, and his army had captains, higher captains, and chief captains, as described in Alma chapter 2, verse 13. Here there was a three-tiered division of forces, No longer was it a single mass of warriors charging another single body of warriors, nor was it a subdivided mass with several war bands led by chieftains who then agreed to the leadership of a senior chief. This seemed to be a hierarchical system, possibly similar to the children of Israel who formed groups of tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands, as we are told in Exodus chapter 18, verses 21 to 25. It is unclear whether there were numerous tiers or simply three at this point, but what is clear is that there was now the beginning of a bureaucratic organization for the military rather than simply masses of people in an uncoordinated horde. In the preparations of Moroni, the command relationships became more specified and geographical as Moroni appointed regional commanders to support cities for each region. By the end of Nephiha's service as chief judge, and until Laconius filled that position in about 13 AD, the chief judge did not seem to lead the army in battle. This is a time span of about 86 years. The separation in perceived responsibilities 
was an important one and represented one of the most significant social-political changes in this period. The senior magistrate did not have a responsibility to personally lead the effort to protect the state or the tribe. The reasoning for this is unclear. It did not seem that Nephi Ha or his successor was older than those men leading the fight, as Pahoran joined Moroni in his battles after the defeat of the kingmen, as we are told in Alma chapter 62, verse 14. It is also possible, as will be discussed in episode 20, or part 4.5, that the tremendous battle of the wilderness may have convinced all involved that conflict had become too complex for emergency leaders only, and that a permanent position had become necessary. Regardless of the reasoning, by the end of this part of our podcast series, a chief captain commanded the Nephite armies, and not the Nephite chief magistrate. This was not the case at the beginning. One interpretation of difference in leadership may go as follows. Alma II led the battles against the Amlicites because they were drawn from Zarahemla, Alma II's home and the center of his authority. This was a direct threat to his position and, as such, he would need to lead those opposed to this action. Nephaha had no such requirement in the attacks on Ammonihah and Noah. This was not his region and these were probably not people from his tribe. No one in a tribal culture would expect Nephiha to lead the response. A king would be expected, but a chief judge in a distant city with oversight responsibility on the regional and municipal senior magistrates only? No. Having a chief captain was a significant change. When the Lamanite armies attacked Ammonihah in Alma chapter 16, verses 1 through 3, and then Noah in verse 3 in 83 BC, or the 11th year of the reign of the judges, Nephiha appointed Zoram II to be a chief captain to deal with the problem. The assertion here is that Zoram II was from that area. Maybe he was from the land of Noah. Nephiha was essentially designating a local leader to raise a posse, if you will, and get back those who were kidnapped. It was more than that, but possibly not much more. Zoram II designated his two sons as his deputies, lieutenants or subordinate captains. They were Lehi II and Aha. I think that Lehi II is the same man who served as a lieutenant for Moroni later in the story, though we are not given any confirmation on that. I will stick with that assumption until someone convinces me otherwise. My logic for those who are interested is that Mormon gave us Lehi II's name in Alma chapter 16, verse 5, and he didn't have to. He doesn't give us the names of lots of other leaders. Also, later, Lehi II commanded at the city of Noah in the second battle of Noah, in Alma chapter 49, verses 13 to 25. It seems that he did so because he was from that area, just as I surmise that his father Zoram II was from that area. Enough surmising and assuming. Let's get back to the story. Zoram II began a tradition of chief captains consulting with Alma II, in specific, when he asked where the Lamanites had taken the captives. Alma II told Zoram II to go up to the south wilderness beyond the land of Manti. In Alma chapter 16, verse 6, the guidance of God is laid out. Zoram II followed that guidance, won battles, and regained the captives. In the tremendous battle of the wilderness, the record does not specify who led the Nephites. 
It is probable that if the commander were a name already in the record, as nephi or Zoram II were, or one who would become prominent in the record like Moroni, then Mormon would have included it. It may be that this enormous battle was not led by the Nephite chief judge or the already named chief captain, but was led by another man, or, because of the size and scope of the fighting, was never actually led by a single Nephite commander, but involved lots of fighting by lots of groups across a large area. Either way, following this battle, the Nephites departed completely from the idea that military commander and chief magistrate were the same person. This break may have occurred with the ascension of nephi to the judgment seat or the designation of Zoram to his chief captain, but that is unclear. It is clear that with the appointment of Moroni, the Nephites had separated the two positions permanently. Number 4. Refugees A key part of the Book of Mormon story is the welcoming on the part of the Nephites of refugees or those who accept covenants to live the gospel of Jesus Christ from the Lamanites. As refugees and immigration have become highly politicized in the 21st century, I want to emphasize that I am not trying to preach about specific government policies that I believe should be implemented. I do think that the Book of Mormon expresses some guidance about how we, as individuals and communities, ought to treat those in need who come from abroad and want to enter into commitments to be like us. What happened in the Book of Mormon in this period? As I have stated in the summary, the Nephites welcomed in the anti-Nephi-Lehi's. They gave them land, apparently good land, They agreed to have a standing security force or military established to protect them. These were significant commitments of resources. The refugee anti-Nephi-Lehi's agreed to provide sustenance to support those designated as their protectors. This was done because the Nephites respected the motivation and purpose and importance of their covenants of nonviolence. Once the Nephites believed that the anti-Nephi-Lehi's were exposed, they moved them to a more protected area. We will discuss these people in greater detail later in this part and in the parts to come. It is important to recognize the significance of what was done here. The ancient world was not a world of plenty. I regularly tell my students that we are the first or maybe the second generation where you can be poor and fat. Most human beings have lived very close to starvation, and they could not afford the generosity of modern society with respect to charity, as giving away food or resources might literally have meant death for yourself or your family. That is rarely true today, and only true in the worst governed countries or the worst circumstances in wealthy countries. What does all of this mean to you? I want to offer a couple of suggestions for you to consider as you read and reread Alma chapters 1 through 42. 1. When we are leaders, we need to lead physically and spiritually. We need to be present in the front and also directing others. 2. Almost as a contrast, but I don't think contradictory, we need to be comfortable designating our chief captains to manage parts of the metaphorical battle. 
I think this is a reason for organizations in the church, as well as classes and quorums, who are to be led by captains and chief captains. 3. When a chief captain, we need to consult the spiritual leader for where to go and fight. God knows where to be and how to win. Ask the prophet and be the prophet in that you should seek your own revelation and the revelation of leaders above you. 4. Things will change. That is okay. Roll with it and move forward. 5. Welcome those who come in need. Don't judge. Guard them and protect them. If you are the person in need who is being guarded and protected, then provide what you can to sustain and support those who assist you. I love the Book of Mormon, and I deeply appreciate how Mormon shows us profound truths in the stories and characters he included in the record. The next episode discusses the missionary efforts of Ammon and his brothers, who were the sons of Mosiah too. This episode will illuminate the technical aspects of conflict as we discuss the fighting at the waters of Cebus. It is a popular story in the Book of Mormon, and I hope to provide some illumination on just how much it teaches us. I invite you to reach out and ask questions and send comments to me on Facebook at War in the Book of Mormon or at War in the Book of Mormon at gmail.com. All one word, War in the Book of Mormon at gmail.com. Until next time.